We'll be back in First Kings. We're seeing the closure right now of Solomon's life. And so I've got to get there. And so as we're looking at this, and I think the title is projected, and I think it's accurate as to how it was phrased, King Solomon abdicates to be solo man. Intentional play on words, but very apropos to what we see. Most of us would say, in whatever position we hold, it is either a launch pad for the next tier up, or it's a holding pattern for when it is indeed a fade out. Solomon was at the pinnacle of, we would say in our vernacular, a career. And his name did mean, and still will mean, as it was in its origin, Jedediah, beloved of God. And God loved him. He now in the scriptures is older perhaps at this juncture than his father was when the situation that he found himself in with Bathsheba soured many of the experiences that he would have enjoyed later on. But David's heart, unlike where we will find Solomon's heart, never changed towards God. He accepted responsibility and he held to duty in being as much of an example as he could be in humility, identifying when there was the consequence of actions that we would say were sin, God didn't hide it, but David's heart was considered true unto the end. And David made a very clear and concise directive for Solomon, his son, on what he must do. Build the temple, but do not negate the commandments of the Lord, follow him with all your heart, trust in him, be courageous. It's a big job, but finish it well. And this is perhaps maybe the, the baffler. How could you not finish well? So all of us could say, oh, I remember a time in which my finish was either something that evaporated or something that even now has dubious ponderings. I'm not sure how it's going to work out, how it's going to close. But when the word abdicate is used, most of us have seen that term in history related to kings. Current monarchy, there have been abdications in Great Britain, England's history. But I wanted to kind of make sure we understood what it meant and I already emphasized a little bit, it's a renouncement, this is this definition, of one's throne, and it's linked to failing to undertake responsibility or duty. So that's important. It's not just a clever term of saying, yeah, I quit. 
but it's actually something in which by the responsibility and duty to carry out by choices that have been made, then there's abdication. In several instances, that has been a result of kings or up-and-coming kings or queens choosing to have a relationship with someone outside of the appropriate lineage that has been designated for kingship and queenship. And as a result, they give themselves over to loving someone who could never be admitted into governing alongside of them. Some could say that's a beautiful love story that they would give up the kingdom to love someone exclusively. That is, I think, a beautiful statement of what somebody would be willing to do for the person that was right to do that for. I think, no doubt, it has romance linked to it. As we look into today's text, which is the 11th chapter, this tells us, though, something different. That this abdication is actually something that has been on track. And it's actually something that will come in the form of a pronouncement from God as a result of responsibility and duty to him has been a choice of failure. Here's what it says. King Solomon loved many, notice the key word here coming up, foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. It doesn't say, surely they will make you a better godly man by a refocus of the one and true living God. God is saying to them, we'll trace it, that the hearts of men will be turned away from the true and living God to pursue the gods of culture, of a broken world system. Incompatibility in terms of the divine romance. If, no, but that's okay. <laughs> Welcome, Billy. Solomon Clement. <laughs> Maybe I did. You know what? I think I did. Solomon clung to these in love. Rather than cleave to the God whom he knew through two distinct visitations and whom he had lived his early life seeing was his father's sole joy in serving and the one whom he charged to serve with all his heart. He chose in this the wives that would turn him from the pursuit 
of a successful and vital reign handed to him by his father. Here's where he would have been, apart from knowing his father's heart, he would have understood. If you'll go to Deuteronomy 17, 17, this is where any who would become kings would be referenced to, among several, but certainly very distinctly, because it says that in the 17th chapter, one of its notorieties is written to kings, how they must govern. Picking it up in verse 17, neither, it says, shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. We've looked at the vast wealth of Solomon. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests of the Levite. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Really important. It's essentially saying, as a king, your duty will be to journal with frequency the law that has been given to you on how to govern just basically your governance of the people will be essential by the domestics in the duties and responsibilities that you have. And so Solomon would have heard his father's heart. He would have been one that certainly at some point in time would have penned at least those words. And yet what we see is that it kind of just went away from him. Well, we could understand it's actually going to continue to inform us of how many women influenced him contrary to the heart of God. And this influence is no small consequence. It's huge. It'll affect the entire nation. Actually, I'll go back and replay that. It will infect the entire nation. It will affect them historically. Everything that God had put in place to bring glory to himself in this reign would be decimated by ultimately a culture that became corrupt because of a king who made hundreds of bad choices. We sometimes grieve over one or two bad choices, but Solomon would have made hundreds. This is what this verse says coming up. He clung to these in love, not cleaving to God exclusively for love. And he had 700 wives, princesses. This is identifying that these women would have been presumed culturally the best of the best, the prettiest, most intellectual, most highly esteemed that a man could hope to be able to be seen with 
or credited for. That's the idea here. Nations have been enamored by beauty. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging beauty, but it's when a nation is enamored with it, to the pursuit of it, to the elevation of it above God. This is always one of the things that remains a distinction in cultures that say that is the ultimate pursuit. It's to have one who epitomizes the woman in her beauty, in her form, in her intellect, but mostly moving away from intellect, certainly not considering spirit. It becomes the essence of worshiping the figure. God says, I'm the figure head. Why are you worshiping the figure? And in this context, when we see that this is saying 700 wives and them being princesses, it means that very likely he had his first political persuasion when he took the daughter of Pharaoh. See, that's usually what happens is that multiple deviations happen because of one deviation. Not always, but it would indicate that that is a pattern. It also indicates within this the insatiability of the pursuit of the flesh. You can never satisfy it. That's why God very often will have in small measures the things that we pursue, pursuing it because it's satisfying to us. We actually have episodes where we're just sick of it. We can't stomach it anymore. That's actually a check in our system. It's a means by which God pulls us back into conviction. It's not working for you, is it? It's not working for me. Right. It never will. It never will. I'm the only one that works for you. I'm the only one that makes significant every outcome of life and the manifold blessings that I desire to give you in life. You can never pursue anything other than me enough to only find that you will be sickened by it, unsatisfied by it. Ecclesiastes is the penning of Solomon in the aftermath of the consequence that we're reading about today. His epiphany was, I'm not seeing God anymore. Now I have to look at myself. Now I have to look at my failures. Now I have to measure out what was never within me to have poured out. I now have to look at myself in the mirror. Ecclesiastes is actually a great book that was penned, many as well in Proverbs, which is by contrast his wisdom. The other, by contrast, is his folly. He is able to make a position on both sides of not being centered in the choice that he made as king. And the reason that that's important is because God requires of us the same mentality. I want you to be centered in your life, who it is I am, why I've created you for the purposes that will amaze others and bless you, but you have to be centered. And you have a world system that wants to get you off balance, persuade you to the left, I use that term because you never hear God speak of the left in a positive way. 
not making politics of it. I'm saying he talks about his strong right hand, the righteousness of God, the right way in which we are to go. There is meaning in the roots. He then multiplies beyond that, which shows you the insatiability of the human flesh. And it says this, 300 concubines. The wives were legally entitled to have favor and to be able to be poised with some authority, at least among themselves. The concubines were the addendums. They were the accoutrements. Again, it says to us that not even the most perfect of women among all the known nations of that time, though those nations were detestable to God, and we'll look into why they were, was enough to satisfy Solomon. Point in case. You can't ever be satisfied by the next best thing. You must be satisfied by what you have, which is the best thing. God and whom he has allowed the privilege in our domestics to be whom we have as spouses. That's the next best thing. God. In Ephesians, we're told regarding the domestic life, two simple principles, love and respect. And then God brings back that in the book of Revelation when he's addressing the churches and one in particular, Ephesus. And he simply calls us as people to return to our first love. And when we hear that voice of the Lord calling us back to our first love, we understand that that, being called back to our first love, us complying with hearts that are burning to return to him, then we realize in the same step we take for that love relationship, respect is manifested to God. It's so critical that the church understand these pictures. But it says, for so when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, just as Deuteronomy declared, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. as was the heart of his father, David. They were on two different journeys at this point in time. So here's what this means right now to show you the severity of Solomon's errors. So he violated not taking brides, which again was a cultural acceptability. It wasn't God's. It was that it became, it became a cultural acceptability, but to move as a king to take wives from other despicable, deplorable nations was the sin. And the reason it says that, it says, for Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination, it says, of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Amnon. 
And so within the presentation of these nations, which he had permitted to be, if you would, fused with him through marriages to princesses, this is what we know of whom it is they worshipped. Ashtaroth was the goddess of sexuality. Notice how it plays out, even right now, that word, but how it also is reflected this very day in our culture. Milcom, or by another term more familiar to you, Molech, was the god of baby sacrifice. Think about it, abortion. Thirdly, Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, that god was known as the destroyer. They worshipped him for his only attribute. He was a destroyer. Almost without respect to any distinction of the decades, we've seen all of these before our eyes in print or on TV. The human sexuality defiance of God to worship it became manifested in the latter 60s. My generation just before I became a young junior higher high schooler, I'm caught in the baby boomer, you know, space, time continuum. I came along in the Korean War, so my brothers came between World War II and Korea, just enough to where there was a 13 and nine year gap, where the hair was greased back and the clothes looked sharp, all of a sudden it was a cast off of the things that we have coined politically and culturally as the greatest generation, the World War II generation. Culture became the thing that would be worshiped and the cathedrals and the churches would become those things which men and families would turn from. As a result of that, the constraint in which domestics was to be sealed in marriages became, if you would, irrelevant. But from that generation, there was what we also saw redemptively as the Jesus movement. Why? Because that generation who cast off restraints and had everything that they wanted found out, this isn't working, and I'm not working. But everything that I'm interested in is taken from the pockets that aren't filled with nothing. And my soul, it's being diminished. I have no personality. I have no goals, ambitions. I have nothing. They could see the writing on the wall. What was the reason for that? Because the word of God was still being cultivated in the church, in the evangel of the message. And they realized by writing on the wall, their future and their prospects were dim if they continued to pursue what Solomon would pen in Ecclesiastes as vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And so what you saw that generation do was repent. And they were responding to the word that was faithfully taught. And they were open to all of a sudden just being opened and peeled like an onion or whatever vegetable you want to look at. They were done trying to do everything that was contrary to God. And therefore, they became really what the 
scriptures will tell us in another parable, a pearl of God in which they were willing to sell everything, abandon anything to be able to obtain the pearl of choice, the choice pearl that God was saying you are. So you have human sexuality, you have baby sacrifice and abortion and the destroyer. What do we begin celebrating? The destruction and tearing down of cities. What are we seeing now? We're seeing our own government tear down fellow institutions. There's name calling on all sides. And actually there's great concern from legal scholar to scholars on what that implies. When one institution tears down the other institution and the other institution tears down the other two, you have what is called dysfunction politically in the executive branch, in the legislative branch, and the judiciary in which it is the epitome of not unity, but disunity. And it is, in essence, what this God was noted for. Yeah, destroy. What are you hearing? You're hearing blasphemies against God. You're hearing profanities that are becoming as common as language that we would teach with great skill to our young kids on how to talk, how not to talk. It's being introduced into our young culture today as something that's just a word and we know what we're talking about. Profanity is becoming just a word that you can use anytime. And it seems to be that anyone, even in areas of public influence, are not embarrassed, not ashamed by the language that they use. We've looked at these as verses. As a culture, we are looking in the face of these gods, which in full capacity are turning the hearts of men and of women against the one and true God. You're seeing what is a familiar term called pushback. Should have been pushed back a long time ago. Should have been defeated hundreds of years ago. But as this tells you, in essence, the depravity of Solomon's heart, it was because increment by increment and choice by choice, he abandoned God who loved him. I found just the other day, I've in the move, I've lost misplaced a lot of things. And one of the things that I misplaced was a journal, my spiritual journal, going back to a long way, at least to 88. And I'm now cutting into boxes because I want to review my life. I want to go back and to add to it. And the Lord knew that was on my heart and I was willing to cut through boxes to find it. I was finding other things as well. But that was one of the chief motivations I had and I started just pulling out things. Oh, man, that's awesome. I found it. Ooh, I haven't seen that in a while. And then all of a sudden, this beautiful black briefcase, fabric briefcase. And I said, that's it. That's God, the treasure. That's God, the notes that I took from God. And I unzipped it, and there it was. Hello, Richard, my good friend. 
can we talk again? And so I just cuddled it and took it into the house. In the process of really having that as the desire of my heart, the Lord gave me other things. We won't need to get into them. They were sentimental. I found them. In my pursuit of the one thing, which were the directives of God for my life, I found these blessings of God. And it was touching, to say the least. In our culture, in the word, these things presently are the tensions that are against the church, against the righteous. But let's advance and let's pray sincerely that our nation will be corrected by conviction and not by consequence. Do you realize that consequences on the heels of choices that are ignored on conviction and everybody can get dragged into it. We have to teach our children to make wise choices. And it says he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry this is the word. The Lord became angry with one whom he loved, had great ambitions for, and allowed him to enjoy so much with Solomon because his heart had turned from the Lord and, God, and the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. We don't have record of David having an actual appearance of God. We have him spiritually attuned to God. We're, between the two, probably David had a greater understanding about God than Solomon did in the miraculous appearance of God before him and the dream state that he had. Isn't that interesting? Very often we say, well, show me God and I'll believe in him and I'll do what he did as he says. Well, David is one that we don't have the evidence of the appearing of God. He just walked in the manner that his heart was the motivation to be in his presence. And he could pen the things of God as if he had spent time side by side with God. That's why very often in the church age today, we want to be those who say, stay grounded in the word, exercise your faith. Don't be in pursuit of the experiential. It's not going to increase your faith. You'll just ask God for more experiences. And God's actually into you, believing that you're walking this day in faith, in belief, and you will see as you follow him. If it's what you have to see in order to follow him, you are walking in Solomon's means and method. And so God right now is correctively speaking to Solomon. God said to Solomon, because you've done this and have not kept my covenant and have not kept my covenant, excuse me, covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant, David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. We'll stop there because it's a point that needs to be emphasized. This is the beginning of ultimately what will be the, the national division 
There would be the northern kingdom with 10 tribes. There would be the southern kingdom, which is primarily being listed as both Judah and Benjamin, though not mentioned. And the reasons for that is its infancy. They'll become the southern kingdom. They will be the ones who basically will be employed to oversee Jerusalem while the 10 tribes go north into the Syrian region. Later on, as you'll see the lineage of kings, failure after failure after failure after failure, they will be ultimately displaced as a nation by 10 tribes moving into Babylon. You can read about it in Daniel. And then later on, the southern tribes will be taken as well. All because of an event that could have been stopped if the man who had the authority to stop it would have stopped himself. God has an expectation that we, as believers, will stop ourselves before intervention in which we are stopped. And we've seen that even after the building, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, twice, Solomon had his, then Nehemiah and Ezra, under Zerubbabel, they had theirs, and then under Herod, which was a political building, but nevertheless, it was authentically, for the Jews, it would have been the one Jesus physically entered into and taught from. It's not there today. Why? Because it's showing us that the choice of a nation will render blessings or cursings. The only way in which this nation finds itself exalted in a special way that we might do special things for God is to follow God with all of our heart, not have division in our hearts, and certainly not to allow the pressure of politics to conform us to anything that shows compromise as far as culture. That is happening today. We have churches that are caving in to the pressures of culture saying, can't you lean a little bit into us? Well, Solomon leaned a little bit into all of that. And in his doing so, the offense was so great that the Lord simply intervened and said, it will be taken now. But for your father's sake, there will be a remnant. And I'm not going to forget David. You will have your final words in Ecclesiastes. You will have Proverbs, which I will keep. But the rest of what you could have done and preserved for yourself, it will go into the dustbin of history. And to this day, even what we know slightly about Solomon's kingdom, we can't even imagine what God would have done. If Jerusalem would have been extraordinary under Herod's tenure at Jesus' time, Solomon's would have been off the page. And sadly, historically, it is. It was never left to be everything that we would say, my goodness. But we did say that if a woman some 1,900 miles would have traveled in the authority that she had as a monarch, as a queen, and to give her the kinds of tribute to God for what he represented, it's amazing. Let me take you through some principles looking back. Nehemiah would say in the 13th chapter, obviously Solomon wouldn't have heard this, but generationally, Nehemiah is a reminder of what we need to tell people looking back on our lives, looking back 
on the church. It says this, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. He's reciting Nehemiah the very same things that Solomon had been guilty of and ultimately plunged the nation of Israel into a judgment. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. We have children today speaking ungodly cultural language because they haven't been taught godly language. And language is now kind of like, yeah, whatever you want to say, however you want to say it. Have at it. We speak maliciously towards one another, and we do not speak with reverence about God. I'm not saying the church per se, but I am saying that we're seeing as a culture that the, rev the reverence of God just simply is not there. He's being mocked. Even in the laws that we have justified, and praise God, at least one of them has been batted out of play. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. I'm going to ask you to go to another scripture. Practical advice, James chapter 1, picking it up in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one, Solomon, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Solomon, beloved of God, drawn away, it says enticed by his own desires. Solomon, why did you become solo man? Why did you think you could do it on your own as opposed to with God exclusively? It's so true. Without God, we can do nothing. We are completely dependent upon him for everything that speaks of vital blessings and to have persuasion among culture. And yet somehow the enemy knows the playbook of humanity. He knows what our hearts also can choose to read when we are not reading his word. And that's to go their way. Lean into them just a little bit. Give them just a little bit of tender hearing. Acknowledge it. Okay, I understand where you're coming from, and it's okay. It's okay. But it's not okay. The consequence, it says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Closing there, 21 through 24 says this, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face 
in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. And so what we do is we put ourselves in remembrance of what we know as men and women we are, but what we know more greatly who Jesus is and what he's chosen to do. He is mindful that we are but dust, but praise the Lord, he doesn't mix us with water and chuck us like a dirt ball. He salvages us. He knows that from the very dirt of the earth he took man, brought along a splendid designed human being that he created from the side of man, woman. He allowed there to be a procreation that considers, again, the validity of a creative God that gives charge and responsibility of two people married to have children as the next generation to know him and worship him. So these are anchor points right now in principles to the picture that we're seeing right now of consequence in Solomon's life. He will have much to say to his generation in Ecclesiastes. We can actually say that God allowed him to be so broken, he was putting on paper how not to let that happen to us. Specific Proverbs, certainly the book of Ecclesiastes, and as well, the poetic writing of how love should have started and maintained in the Song of Solomon. He was even allowed to pen, in the folly of having many women, his one ideal. And Jesus would say, you're one ideal for me. You're the one I've picked. You're the bride for me. And we need to be able to say, and you're the bridegroom for me. You to man. I'm just dirt. Thank you, Lord, for loving me. So King Solomon abdicates to be solo man. We who very often find ourselves wanting to go solo, we need to say, nope, can't do it without you, Lord. I want to do it only with you. Found my journal. I'm going to reread it. Thank you for finding it for me. Get your journals out. Pen the journey. God's faithfulness. Pray with the church. Pray for the church. Pray for our nation. Let us not be prey to the enemy of God, Satan. What a foothold he has. He's actually got his hands in on people's hearts. So sad. But prayer does have with it the outcome of a turn of events. I personally believe that a turn of events happened via an executive branch that prevailed for a season and ultimately to appointments of conservative thinking, which I'm not ashamed of. I hear what others say. It was the wrong thing to do. No, it wasn't. Anything that curtails and stops the worship of Molech is the right thing to do. And I hope that it continues to prevail in legislatures within every state. There needs to be a displacement of corrupt politicians for men and women who understand their solemn responsibility to represent God in authority that they have. A nation needs to change or God will change the position of that nation.